Our reading for today is Mark 3, 20 through 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless the man, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever and whoever excuse me, and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. You may have a seat. Thanks, Lainey. Reflection, that was nice. Um, So you heard it in there. Uh, This morning we get to talk about the unforgivable sin, um, which is no pressure there, right? Um, So... Here's, here's uh, some things just to kind of categorize where we're going to go and help you kind of set up um, the direction that, that we want to um, head in. Um, so if you haven't been with us, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and, um, and the reason that's important is because we're continuing on in that vein, obviously. And um, he, he, he makes this shift now, Mark, the Holy Spirit, makes this shift in the Gospel of Mark that, um, that changes the dy- dynamic in, in, which we, in the way in which we approach uh, Mark. And what I mean by that is Jonathan Edwards, um, uh, uh, old Bible scholar, Bible teacher, pastor, um, uh, called this section as we move into Mark something called the Markian Sandwiches, a fancy word uh, for it would be something called an inclusio. Now, I need you to put your thinking caps on just real quick because we're going to today um, go into some Greek stuff. And, and you know, I've tried to explain this before, I, I don't want to just kind of beat my chest and show that how we know Greek. And, but I think sometimes when it's important for us to get at what's being said there, I want to do that and then explain these things like what a Markian sandwich is. And so what Mark is going to do for a big portion of what we're going to go into now is he's going to talk about one thing, right? So bread, and then he's going to slip in this other thing, this meat, and then he's going to put another piece, and it's a Markian sandwich, right? It's, it's, it's something sandwich, an inclusio. It's inclusion between here's this, I'm talking about this thing, I go off and I'm talking about this thing, and then I pick it back up. And so whatever was talked about in the middle um, has kind of defining qualities for those things outside and vice versa. And so the reason that's a big deal is because that is today for this passage, um, and we're going to do that. Now, here's the thing. Um, we are going to talk about what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, um, and I'm going to do my best to explain um, what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, but I, I don't want us to get lost in that because that's not the point of the passage. In this Marquean sandwich, the point of the passage is not what sin is unforgivable, 
Okay, that's not the point of what this whole passage is. And I'm absolutely not looking for um, debates on this. So if you're like, no, unforgivable sin is like homosexuality. I'm like, well, no, it's not. But um, whatever you think it is or whatever you would say it was, I'm not looking to argue. I'll do my best to explain why I think what it is. But um, this is not something um, that we're just going to be able to like, all right, here it is. Walk out of here and everyone agrees because there are vast denominations who would disagree with that is. But again, not the point of the passage. So let's pick it up on our text. If you remember, um, Uh, Jesus has basically said from the beginning, I'm establishing this kingdom and he has shown us what that kingdom looks like. And in showing us what that kingdom looks like, he's also laid out how this kingdom plays out. But more than that, and us trying to figure out who Jesus is, he's also showed us who is in that kingdom. And if you were here last week, we talked about who is in that kingdom and the people in that kingdom are ordinary. There's nothing special about those people who are in the kingdom of God. There's no vast array of knowledge. There's no qualms about political swagger. There's there's none of that. There is ordinariness. There is sin. There is fault. And because of God's grace, those things, those people are made saints, right? And so because of who he is and what he has done, we are called saints. And so we are looked at by the world as foolish. That's okay. We're we're in God's family. We're in God's kingdom. We're looked at by, by the world as silly. That's okay. We are found in God, though we are ordinary. So now we pick it up. And I hope to, in some ways, excite uh, this. But like I said, we're going to have to put our thinking caps on because there's some um, really dense stuff in here. So let's pick it up in verse 20. After Jesus calls his 12 disciples, this is what he says. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that uh, they could not even eat. So Jesus is with his disciples. Uh, Jesus goes back to the place in where he's dwelling. He's, he's there with his disciples and they cannot eat because... Um, The crowd continues to gather around and the family looks at Jesus and his disciples specifically talking about Jesus. And he says, when his families heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. And so the picture that's being painted right away is here's Jesus with his disciples and throng, thongs, throngs, not thongs. Let's do throngs, um, throngs of people, cut that out, um, and throngs of people are gathering around him, right? People with diseases, people with sickness, whatever it is. I got to get over that right now. Um, so there's all these people around Jesus. Let's just say it like that, okay? Um, and, and he's sitting there and he's healing the sick, right? Which is a good thing as he's healing the sick. And as he heals the sick, people walk away and they're so unbelievably grateful, right? And then he casts out demons and people are so unbelievably grateful. But he's working and he's doing and he's working and he's doing. And his family looks at him and he goes, what is he doing? He's not even eating. And so they go to seize him. And here's our first Greek word, um, karatas, which sounds super similar to the word karate, right? Okay. Has no semblance whatsoever, but it literally means to, to grab or to hold. They go to grab him to, to physically pull him away from the crowd because they believe he's out of his mind. Now, out of his mind, the second Greek word is exorcismi. It's, it's literally where we get our word exorcism from. They believe he's, he's lost it at first. Okay, maybe this dude was doing some good stuff. Maybe he is legit, but he's clearly crazy, right? And so they're seeing what he's doing. And so they go physically grab him as if to protect Jesus from Jesus. This is a little extreme, Jesus. And so we think you're crazy. Um, and again, tied into exorcism, which is a big deal in a minute. We're going to take you out of there. You're out of your mind. And they want to pull Jesus away from what? He is doing, okay? So the family's watching, and they have this desire to do that. But before they do, um, something else takes place. In verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, 
he casts out demons. And so before the family can get to him, Jesus is healing the sick and he's casting out demons. The Pharisees who are now down from Jerusalem. Now we've ran into some Pharisees before, haven't we? But those are like JV uh, Pharisees. These are like varsity Pharisees from Jerusalem. Like this is Camino from Star Wars. And like the planet is, that's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is Camino. And that's where all the clones are made for the Pharisees. And they come down. If you don't, I've never seen Star Wars. That doesn't make any sense to you. But, um, and these, these Pharisees are like, like uh, uh, Django Fett, okay? You still track with me? No? Okay. So anyway, my point is these are the super Pharisees. These are the guys that if, if you've ever ran into like the, the Mormons who come to your door or you meet with as you begin to interact with them, if you begin to kind of talk with them through some of the things they believe and they don't really have answers, what they do is they go get somebody higher up, a higher elder to come to your house, which is, makes for so much fun, right? And so they, they bring them. And this is essentially what's happening. These JV Pharisees are kind of like, hey, we don't know what to do with this guy because he's obviously doing some good stuff. So we don't know how to process what's going on. And so they go get the higher ups and the Jerusalem Pharisees come in and they see what's taking place. And their declaration on the whole scene is this. He is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. Some historians would even say that the Pharisees would go around telling the people that when he casts out a demon, he would go, I cast you out in the name of Beelzebub. I cast you out in the name of Beelzebub. They, they, they would literally try to spread rumors about Jesus that he is casting out these demons by the power of demons. Now, Jesus' answer to this is so beautifully simple, right? This is how he responds to what they're saying. He says this, And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless, the, unless he first binds the strong man. Then he indeed may plunder his house. So let me just uh, kind of um, sum up what he's saying. It's, it's real simple. Listen, if I was doing this by the power of Satan, why would I be casting out Satan? Okay, this, this doesn't make any sense. Why, if, if, I'm, if, I'm, if the kingdom of darkness, and I want the kingdom of darkness to grow, why am I subverting the kingdom of darkness? This doesn't, this makes no sense. We would just be fighting each other's like Raiders fans. This doesn't make sense. And so now we have this like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about, right? This, why would Satan cast out Satan? The answer is so simple. It's so simple. And he says, no, 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 you're missing what's happening, guys. And so now these pompous Pharisees who are down from Jerusalem made this trek to deal with this Jesus character are listening. And he goes, no, no, let me explain to you what's actually happening. See, um, there's this, this, this Satan character who has infiltrated uh, my kingdom. And ha- as he's infiltrated the kingdom, he has brought darkness. He's brought pain. He's brought suffering. He's brought distress over and over and over again. And for me to plunder, to pummel everything that's in his house, I got to tie him up first. I love how the NLT says it. The NLT is the New Living Translation Bible. And if you don't understand the difference, the Greek is, man, a perfect language to begin to um, unearth what's being said in in God's word because um, sometimes it it does require this word for word, right? So if I was to say, hey, my heart beats for you, and you were to try to translate to somewhere else, you would go, literally, yes, I am saying my heart beats for you, but I don't literally mean 
my heart beats for you, right? I'm saying, like, I love you endlessly, the very way I work, right? So there's more than to what we're saying and what we're saying. And the New Living Translation and, and closer thought-for-thought translations, that's a different word-for-word and thought-for-thought translations, sometimes helps us get at that. We specifically use the ESV um, because we feel like we can explain those things, but sometimes the NLT um, gets it right. Even the, the NIV, they might get it right sometimes. Um, that was a, a, a silly Bible joke. Um, this is what he says. Let me illustrate this further. This is um, the NLT's translation of verse 27. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. So this is what Jesus is saying. I'm not Satan casting out Satan. No, 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 you're wrong. See, too long you've lived on the block where King Satan is sitting on the corner and he's ruling the block and everyone's afraid to go by that house because they might get picked on. And so now I'm telling you, I'm the new neighbor who moved in. I'm going to open a can and I'm going to show you who runs the block. And so as Jesus does this, he says, no, 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 no. You don't run the block anymore, bro. I run the block. And so he's going to roll into his house and everything that Satan on that corner house has taken. Hey, man, he took your TV. Hey, he took your radio. He took your iPad. I'm going to plunder his house because I'm bigger. I'm badder. I'm stronger. This is what I'm doing. And so Jesus clearly declares in front of the Pharisees who say, no, you're doing this by the power of Satan. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm tying up Satan, bro. So I can do a greater work than what you think I'm doing. And then he makes the declaration, which let's get at it. This is what Jesus says. And I feel like I'm sitting there wrestling with the Holy Spirit all week. What does this have to do with anything? So let's explain the best we can um, because he has it here for a reason, right? Truly, I say to you, all sins. So he says this after he's saying he's going to pummel the house of God. Oh, wait, no, pummel the house of Satan, right? Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, and, and whoever blasphemies uh, against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. What is going on? So um, let me try to explain it like this before we, we get at this. So I have um, a seven-year-old Corbin, a five-year-old Titus, and a two-year-old baby Eve. And um, there are moments when um, I'm dealing with Eve, who's two years old, where I tell her not to do something. And she absolutely does not understand why I'm telling her not to do that. I'm trying to explain, you cannot go into the middle of the road, okay? And she's crying. She's, so, so then I'm trying to explain, Eve, let me explain to you. And I'll, I'll talk to her like this, and I know it makes, but I'm saying, okay, Eve, here's the deal. Um, a car could be coming, let's say, 30 miles an hour. And that car is coming down the road. Um, you're really tiny, and it's not going to see you, sweetie. And so it will hit you because you're, you're really small, and it's kind of going fast. And she looks at me and she goes, Evirella. Okay? You don't understand what I'm saying, do you? Evirella. Okay? And then she'll twirl. Okay? Now, it is clear that she is upset. She does not get um, what I'm trying to communicate, what, what I'm trying to lay down, because there is such a difference. But if you fast forward three years to my son Titus, there are things that I can explain to Titus that Eve would not understand, right? So now I can explain. I go, hey, buddy, a car might hit you. Oh, yeah, I don't want a car to hit me. But even if you fast forward two more years, because there are some things that I explained to Titus that he doesn't get, but I can explain to Corbin, 
right? And so what, I, what I'm noticing with these is that as I look and I'm trying to explain, there are things that as kids, they don't understand what I'm saying. They don't understand why. But as they go on, things to begin to get unearthed. And I've noticed this doesn't just end with like kids, right? So it's not just that there's a, a 25, 30 year difference between my kids and I, but it also goes past me. There are moments in Elder Jim here, who's, I don't know, 100 years older than I am. And, and I could tell sometimes in his eyes, he's looking at me going, this dumb kid, right? There, there are things where Jim just drops these wisdom bombs and I'm going, what, who is this dude hanging out with? Solomon? Like, where's this guy? So, and, 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 and Jesus, and, and Jesus, well, Jim kind of the same, uh, but uh, Jim, and, and Jim has this like, hey, you'll get it. And, and those of you who, who have lived longer lives, more mature um, uh, and, and older, you can look back at, and see so much of what's going on in the generation before you, the generation before that. Um, and as you get older, you see this as you look down and you go, man, that's going to be harmful. That's going to be detrimental. They need to stop that. And there are things that you see long-term that you wish they would just get, right? If that's true in a temporal sense, If 25 years creates dissonance between understanding, how much more does eternity? Like if an eternal God would write a book and he would put things in that book and you being temporal, more than just 25 years, how much do we sometimes, like Eve, read the Bible and go, I don't know what you're saying right now. But then we read it a little more and we're like, Titus, oh, I get that. But I don't know what you're saying now. And then a little bit further, like, I, I, I get what though, but now I don't know what you're saying, right? And so there is this sense of as we go and we learn more and more. But this, this Bible thing is more than just a book. Because I've read the, the Gospel of John 20 times when I got saved. I had no idea what it was saying. And then slowly but surely as I read it, I understood a little more. But then I had more questions, right, about what was being said here. And so as I answered more questions, uh, 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 more questions arose. And now I'm, okay, now I'm reading this. What does Mekilzedek have to do? And I'm reading all these things in the Bible. I don't know what's going on at certain points. But as I go on, I'm learning. And I'm learning. And I'm learning. And I'm learning. And I'm learning. But at the same time, there are things that he says that we just go, man. I don't fully understand this. I want to understand this, but my temporal mind can't wrap around it. Now, I'm not saying that's absolutely instance. I'm not saying when we talk about what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, this unforgivable sin, we don't have an answer. But what I am saying is the pride of thinking we have all the answers, man, that that can get a a little weird at times. And so I'm going to read this. I'm going to try to explain to us what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is because believe me, I've had more than one conversation with someone who thinks they've committed the unpardonable sin the sin that they cannot be forgiven of. And, and I hope, to, um, I hope to, to weigh some of those, those worries down. So um, I'm not usually a note guy, but when we come to this, I'm going to try to stick with my notes because um, this is a tangent, I feel like, and this can get um, even, even worse. So let's first define when we talk about blasphemy. I've tried to think about the word blasphemy. What does the word blasphemy, blasphemy mean? And this is, I came up with two words that I hope um, unearths it. I, I define blasphemy as defiant irreverence. So when I deal with Muslims or people of different faiths or maybe just wh- whoever it is, um, there is this who, who is Allah, and, and if you write um, maybe uh, something bad about Allah or Muhammad, there is this defiant irreverence. And we would say the same is true for Jesus and the cross, right? If you would make fun of Jesus, there is defiance of reverence. And so blasphemy is this defiant, irreverent um, speech, thought, action, whatever it is, this blasphemy towards the spirit of God, okay? 
Now, that doesn't answer exactly what it is, but when Jesus says it, whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit, I just wanted to use a defining of terms. When we define those terms, that's what blasphemy is, and that's the, the Spirit is. We are defiantly being irreverent towards the Spirit of God. Now, um, directly, I want to answer what is, the, uh, what is blasphemy, or at least what people have said. So I have three things that um, are kind of the main thing. Here, here's the first one. People have tried to label the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit thing as like certain specific sins. Um, so I've heard it and I've read it in countless commentaries this week. Um, it's murder, it's adultery, it's homosexuality, um, it's sexual morality, whatever it is. And man, I just, like if context is king when we study the Bible, what does the context say instead of just ripping verses out to kind of do what we want with them? If context is king, I don't see how that has anything to do with anything in this context. Jesus is not looking and going, all right, Pharisees, you're saying I have a spirit of, of demons within me. You've committed homosexuality. You're going to hell and you'll never be forgiven. It, doesn't, it makes no sense whatsoever. So I, I don't, um, and I will tell you what I believe it is, but this is the first one I would say it is not. Um, another thing, I grew up in the, the charismatic movement, not grew up, I got saved into the charismatic movement when I was in high school. And, and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was always, if you see a work of God, um, i.e., like if you watch Benny Hinn and you say, that's not God, okay, which I would, um, and you, you look at that and you say, that's not God, um, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You are saying what God is doing is not God. Now, um, I, I, the reason I struggle with that is because um, everyone almost, who before they become a Christian, pretty much does that. Before you're a Christian, you pretty much look at what the Holy Spirit is doing, and you're, you're rebelling against it, right? And you're going, no, that's not the Spirit of God, right? And so um, I, I would lean in a direction that that's not it. Here, here's a, a third view, and I've gone actually through all, believing all three of these um, are the views, um, and this is the third view. Some would say that um, this sin actually can't be committed today because Jesus is not on the earth. Some would, people would say that um, this is saying that the Spirit within Jesus Christ is a demon, and therefore, by saying that, you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Now, Though I would disagree with that statement, and though even some redemption pastors would say that that's what it is, I would say that's part of the truth. Now, now here's, here's why I would say that's part of the truth. Um, if you read verse 30, there's, there's something more going on here. So after he says, hey, listen, um, you, you can be forgiven of all these sins, but there's one sin you can't be forgiven of. It's the, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then he defines what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, for they were saying... He has an unclean spirit. Here's a next Greek word. That word saying, um, how do you communicate in English? I don't just say something once, but I continue to say something over and over. And the Pharisees over and over continue to say, and this is the Greek tense it's in, over and over, demon, 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 not God, not God, not God, Beelzebub. No, this is wrong. Over and over, they continued to say this. Now, um, Wayne Grudem, who's uh, um, a theologian at Phoenix Seminary, um, he wrote a book called Systematic Theology that we use a truncated version of that for our leadership development. This is what he says. It's a long quote, but I said you got to put your thinking caps on, so track with me very quickly. This is what he says. This sin, talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, consists of unusually malicious, willful rejection and slander against the Holy Spirit's work attesting to Christ and attributing that work to Satan. A close look at the context of Jesus' statement in Matthew and Mark shows that Jesus was speaking in response to the accusation of the Pharisees, which we've all talked about. So the context is, this is the, the Pharisees are accusing uh, what Jesus is doing as satanic. The Pharisees themselves had repeatedly seen clear demonstrations of the amazing power of the Holy Spirit working through Jesus to bring life and health to many people. Hear this. But the Pharisees, in spite of clear demonstrations of the work of the Holy Spirit in front of their eyes, 
willfully rejected Jesus' authority and his teaching, attributing it to the devil. Jesus then told them clearly, no house divided against itself will stand. It was irrational and foolish for Pharisees to attribute Jesus' exorcism to the power of Satan. It was a classic, willful, malicious lie. So I've defined what um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is by two things. Um, I feel like a professor right now, but um, just here we go. This is the first thing. This is what I would say. This is saying in the continual sense, so you keep saying it, that the Spirit of God is evil. This is not just one time, but you look at what the Spirit of God is doing against the Holy Spirit, and you say, no. Now, even if you don't have a semblance of evil, um, Jesus would tell us in the the same context that there's no neutrality. You're either with me or against me. So by saying that is not God, you don't believe it it is what it is. There's that first, that that other one that they said, but also calling it evil. There's this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but continuing to do that, okay? So... For you to say, to call it evil one time is, is, is not what I would say that is. And then the second thing is this. It's a willful rejection of the facts about Christ that his opponents knew to be true. Now, there's something I want you to look at. The, the, the word in, um, in verse uh, 29, there's three words. Never has forgiveness. You can actually translate this, never has forgiveness, as never obtain forgiveness. So here's what I would argue. Um, the Spirit of God has, has tried to melee you with who Jesus is and try to show you this path. And you continue over and over, though the facts are clear, though he is tr- clearly like um, beating on your heart, showing you what the truth is, you willfully over and over and over reject Jesus Christ. Because the truth is, two verses to help you understand this, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God says Jesus is a curse, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So no one can say, hey, I believe in Jesus. You may be able to physically say that, but to truly believe it, it is only through the regeneration power of the Holy Spirit. So um, maybe some of you have talked, you receive Jesus and then the Holy Spirit, but that's not what we're told right here. What we're told right here is the Holy Spirit comes on you. He wakens you up. Now, any of you in this room who's experienced that know what that's like. Like you're sitting there going, how did I not see this before? Like what just happened? Because this is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. He's woken you up, and now you can say Jesus is Lord. Another verse in uh, John 6, uh, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. So it is the Spirit, that the, your flesh, your wisdom, your, your, your grandeur, none of that can wake you up to the Spirit of God. Only the Spirit of God can you wake you up to the Spirit of God. And so by continuing to go as the Spirit, which, like coming at you over and over, hey, listen, Follow Jesus. See how the demonstration's here. There's something within your heart. You continue over and over, and you, and this is the big distinction, you never obtain salvation because you don't want salvation. And, and, and I know there's so many nuances in this, and the theological juggernauts in the room are going to be like, well, that's not it. Um, well, I tried my best. So here's what I'm going to say. Um, uh, a guy named Louis Burkoff has uh, given us a quote because there are some of you who are fearful that you've committed um, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this unpardonable sin. Let me just read to you what he says, because I think it will help. The fact that the unpardonable sin, unpardonable sin involves such extreme hardness of heart and lack of repentance indicates that those who fear they have committed it, yet still have sorrow for sin in their heart and desire to seek God, certainly do not fall into that category of guilt. So the truth is, because it is the Spirit who convicts, because it is the Spirit who guides. If you go, man, I'm really afraid. I feel this guilt and conviction that I've done something wrong. Well, then you have the Holy Spirit, and he's the only way to Jesus Christ. 
He's the means in which you obtain Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the means in which you obtain the Father, right? And so there is this reaction that you go, because you have this deep conviction that you want to follow God desperately, would innately show you that you have not committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, that is um, Bible Class 101. See you next week on that. Now, I don't think, um, I, again, I don't think this is the premise of what um, this passage is talking about. Because there's an interesting shift that takes place, isn't there? Um, the first shift is Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He's, he's Jesusness is, is going around and he's healing people. And as he heals people, his family goes to seize him because they use this word again where we get exorcism from. They believe he's out of his mind. And that doesn't sound too far off from the Pharisees, does it? That in this moment, the Pharisees look and they say, no, it's the devil. He's crazy. He's a liar. Now, I shared a quote two months ago from a man named C.S. Lewis who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, the Screwtape Letters. And in this, in this uh, quote, I shared how um, C.S. Lewis argues that you can't just sit in this room and say, Jesus is a good man, but I don't believe he's God. And he gives you three categories that ultimately fall in this. He says, the, the first category is you can say he's crazy. Like he's a lunatic. And this in this moment is what his family is doing. He's out of his mind. I mean, this dude built the largest religion in the world out of lies. He's crazy. Only a crazy man would do that. So he's either a lunatic. C.S. Lewis would also say, you can also call him a liar, which is exactly what the Pharisees do. They come on the scene and they say, no, you're lying. This isn't the spirit of God. This is the spirit of Satan. So you can call him a liar or... We find out you can call him Lord. And this is the the end of our passage, and um, I will try to do this in in 10 minutes. Um, This is where I think the thrust of the passage goes. Verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came. So after he tells, in this interaction with the the Pharisees, he tells them that um, they are... uh, they are doing this unpardonable sin. They have seen what Jesus does over and over, and they refuse to accept forgiveness um, because their hardness of heart. I mean, his mothers and brothers finally come after the interaction with the Pharisees, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and brother are outside seeking you. Now, Jesus, he's sitting with all these people. Um, remember, he's surrounded with, and he says to them, who are my mother and brothers? And uh, who, or sorry, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here's my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, Jesus may be playing dumb here. I don't know what's going on. But Jesus clearly goes, hey, the guy, hey man, your, your, your folks are outside. Who are my folks? Like, who's my mom, my dad, my brother? Who, who are you talking about? And he's surrounded by all these people. He goes, no, listen. Right now, the people who are around me, the people who, who do my will, that's my mother. That's my brother. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because there are some people who try to save Jesus from Jesus. Like, oh, he's, he's, he's Jesus and he's awesome, but, but he's a little crazy. And there's some people who willfully reject him, but neither are the case. Neither are in the family of God. It's those who do his will, those who are around him. And Jesus unearths something so beautiful for us. And this is why I think it's the crux of the passage. What Jesus shows us about his kingdom here in this moment is you are absolutely related to Jesus. Like maybe not physically, you don't have like the same blood running through your veins, but through faith in Jesus Christ, you are a co-heir. So if I was to say, hey, Jesus is in the next room and he's waiting for you, what happens to your heart? Like is there sudden pounder like he knows, he knows what I've done. Like is that, is that what wells up within you? Because this is not at all what's being taken. Like this is, Jesus is, if, if, if we are family, then there's something more going on. If there's this, hey, hey, uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll meet with him in a minute. But Jesus calls us brothers, sisters, 
We're in his family. This is, this is beautiful. Now, this is where I, I want to start to wrap up because um, I think I have a pretty unique perspective on what is going on because of my upbringing. Those of you who um, have heard my story, you know I did not grow up in a functional family, um, well, at all. Um, and um, I don't mean like dysfunctional, like you have the crazy uncle. I mean like dysfunctional, like my uncle's in prison constantly, right? Um, I don't mean like, that was a joke. But anytime I joke around my family, they're like, anyway, um, yeah, so, uh, so here, here's, here's um, why this provided a, a pretty unique perspective. With both my parents being drug addicts, we were pretty poor, and I've, I've shared my story before, sleeping in cars and in and out of hotels and, and whatever it is. And um, I had a pretty unique perspective because in those lower-income areas, I, I grew up predominantly around Hispanic and black guys. And um, my friends stay in the night, and, and I got to see a semblance of what family is, is outside of the white American um, suburban mentality. I, I really got to, to um, grow up around guys who are still best friends, and, and, and seeing that provided a really unique space for me to see what that looks like, because I also went to foster homes and, and got to see some of that, and um, there's two beautiful people sitting in the back row that adopted me in high school, John and Nancy, um, and, and they, they uh, took care of me all through high school, and I got to see what their family interaction was, and I really began to contemplate, if we are in the family of God, what does a healthy family uh, of Jesus look like? If we are all under the Father, and, and I'm going to go to my notes, because I want to say this, I think for us, if you are a Christian in here, there are four things that I think make up a healthy family that absolutely rub against the way that we are doing Christianity. So, so let me just say this. Um, the American way is not the only way. Ask Parkesh. Okay, so the way that we, so the way that, um, oh, geez, there's a million things, but, but let me just, as a simple example. So forever, we just had one room where all of us slept in. Myself, my wife, and our three kids. Now you look at that and go, well, that's dumb. But I'm telling you, when I was in the Philippines and in Ghana, that was the way it is. Like the American way to just put your bed, like, so, so like it's little things like that, right? That like, no, we had one sleeping room where we all slept. That's what we did. And I remember seeing that in the Philippines and I remember bringing that home and going, this is what we're going to do. Okay. Now, um, there's things like that, but there's also cultural things in the way we engage as Christians that have to be pushed up against. And I think these four things, um, need to be mentioned that, that make up the family of God. So if we are truly a family, if you are a brother in Jesus Christ, if you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we are brother and sisters in him, um, there are four things. Here's the first thing. Of families that I recognize across the board, they were, um, they were who they were in the context of their family. Now, let me explain what that means. Um, Corbin is way different than Titus, who's way different than Eve. But all of their last name is the Myers. Okay? So there are individuals in the context of who this family is. So there was this never um, Raphael, my buddy growing up, Raphael. There was this never Raphael who's separate from his family. If his family's in trouble, he's in trouble. Is his family needs, he needs. There was no separating this, right? So C.S. Lewis in, in the, his book, The Four Loves, has a phenomenal quote. This is what he says. Let's pretend there are three friends, A, B, and C. If A should die, then B loses not only A, but A's part in C, while C loses not only A, but A's part in B. In each of my friends, there is something that only other friends can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights that my own should show all the facets. So that's a little confusing, but this is what he says. Let's pretend there's three friends, A, B, and C. If A dies, I don't just lose A. Let's say I'm C. I don't just lose A. 
I lose what A would, would bring out of B, the way that he'd make B laugh, the way that, that, that uh, they would joke around. But, but if I'm B, I don't only just lose A, I also lose that, that he would sometimes rile him up and get him angry, and it would be hilarious. There are things, and, and as a family, if we really are a family, we are individuals. Um, dare I say, uh, we are many leaves but one tree, right? Epic, the movie? No? Okay, so, um, so, so in this moment, we recognize that we are individuals that make up this big family. So this is important. Because you are not an island. God did not create you to be an island. God did not say, oh, you're the exception. You don't have to be in community. You don't have to have people call you out. You don't have to have people hold you accountable. You don't have to encourage people. No, no, no. You're the exception. Unfortunately, 95% of the New Testament, the word you is in the plural. Some commandments you can't even follow outside of community. So God has said, you are an individual. I've made you unique in this confines of my children. We are a family. Man, growing up in the hood taught me this more than anything. So here's the second thing. Um, they, uh, they were representatives of their family. I, I'll never forget. I'm nine years old. I'm uh, uh, maybe nine or ten. I'm walking with my buddies. It's this black dude. And um, one of our friends, he just moved to the neighborhood. And, and he called my black buddy the N-word. And we were almost to his, his house. And his dad heard him call him the N-word, Right? And, um, I, you know, I says, okay, so I'll, I'll see you in a minute. He had to go in the house. The other friend left. And I remember sitting there for like 30 minutes as, as his dad berated him. Oh, my gosh, language. I mean, this is the first time I heard cuss words go together that didn't make sense. Like, okay, so, um, so he just berates him. You don't ever let him call you that. You, and there was this sense of like, hey, you represent, and, and it was crazy because, right, like, because it's a minority within the majority culture, it's not, you're not just representing our family. You're representing our race, and, and we don't take that. You represent us. Man, as Christians, if we are family, can we please see that? Like, you represent me. I represent you because both of us represent Jesus. And when you go to work, that's true. So we've got to see that, that a good, healthy family knows they represent each other. The third one is this. Um, and they would fight like crazy, but they ain't ever leaving. And th- this is a big deal because the American mentality like, tends to lean its hand towards when things I don't like, I can just go to Facebook and write what I want. Um, man, I, uh, Ar- Armando and Fernando, two twins, about 12 years old, Armando beat the H-E double hockey sticks out of Fernando. And um, it, was at, it was at school, and he, oh my gosh, right? They don't get in trouble because they're brothers and they're fighting at recess. Two or three days later, it was that same week, someone pushed Armando, just pushed him. Fernando, like, beat the snot out of him. Just pushed the kid. This kid's name was Thomas. Fernando just brings Thomas to the ground and like, quata, 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 right? Mayweather's him, and because ultimately, like, there's this sense of, hey, we can fight, but we're not going anywhere. I've got your back no matter what happens. Man, are our ties in Christianity so unbelievably weak in America. Like if we were in a third world country in Morocco and all we had was each other, man, we've got to get over silly, annoying, complacent things like I don't like the way they chew their gum. I don't like the way they talk and hog the conversation. I don't like what they believe here. If we were the minority, if we were uh, like 1% of 1% like in Morocco and, and we all we had was Christians, all we had was each other to really have the church grow there, we would get over these little things because we would fight, we would disagree, but we're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. I, I lo- I, I've had an opportunity to be in four of our communities, and I love seeing this at points. I love being even in our community now, the Myers community, 
about six months ago, us seeing really rubbing heads. And after church, uh, one day, just calling all of us aside and saying, hey, listen, we're going to disagree and we're, we're going to fight, but none of us are going anywhere. And that you would be committed, not to redemption Peoria, but to each other, that you would find three, four, five, 10, 15 people that you say, this is my community. And, and, and there are things about my family that I don't like, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. We are for each other. This was so hard for me to get in high school. As I'm adopted by, by this family, like thinking that I'm not going to get food again. So I'm like bringing food to my room. And they're like, what the heck are you doing right now? This idea that the dad would get up before everyone. He would like, he would do the dishes and he would fill the water bottles and he would work till eight and then he would come home and then he would do the dishes and he'd fill the water bottle and then, and then he, he would, he would uh, like hang out and he would talk and, and, and the mom actually cared about us doing school. Like, and, and, and there's this like push and pull and thinking at any moment, if I don't get it right, they're going to leave. And that's just not the case because a healthy family doesn't do that. A healthy family does not do that. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, if we are family, we don't flee. We fight, but we don't flee. The last point, and this is where I'll finish, is uh, only unique to the family of God. Something I've noticed about all um, uh, families and seeing all these different cultures and ideas is um, everyone tends to act like each other, right? So there's this sense of... um, as you hang out with people, like, have you ever noticed when you hang out with people, you start to smell like them if you're at their house? Like, you walk into someone's house, and it's like, this smells like Eric. And you're like, what does Eric smell like? I'm like, look, I don't know what Eric smells like. It just smells like this. And then you, you're hanging out with them for a couple days, and then, like, you, you get home, and you're taking off your shirt, and you're like, this smells like Eric. So you, you begin to smell, interact, talk the same way as your family. Like, and it's, and it's awesome. Like, I see the, 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 the goofiness that is in Titus. I see it. I love it. It's, it's beautiful. But I also see the anger at times. Man, and I'm trying to work that out. I see the competitive. When I pick up something, I don't stop in Corbin. But I also kind of see ninniness in him. Like, sometimes I'm like, dude, man up. And I'm totally like that. I'm so a ninny at times, right? And, and I, I see this in my boys because they, they, they bear my image, maybe physically, but more than that, we become like each other. But this is really hard in the family of God because we're not just supposed to like be um, tuning forks to each other. We are to be conformed into God. We're to be perfect like God is perfect. And this is impossible. For some of us, we, we try to work our way through it, but we can't do enough to be in this family because God is perfect. I want to reflect God. And some of us feel the weight that it's so bad that I could never be a part of the family of God. I can't reflect God. I don't deserve to be in the family of God. But this is unique to the family of God because unlike any father, any mother, any parents that oversees their children, God provides a way for us to be like him in 1 John Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, this is what he says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We will be like our family. Because we shall see him as he is. Listen to verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes 
in him purifies himself as he is pure. See, the difference in the family of God is we all go, none of us are good enough. None of us can get it right. We're all broken. We argue because we're sinful, because we're selfish. That's why there's wars. That's why there's greed. That's why there's pain, because we can't get it right, and we feel like we don't belong. But God in his beauty, if we, as in verse 3, put our hope in him, he purifies us. We serve a good God. We serve an unbelievably good God who's called us into his family. I pray if you don't know him, that you would hear that, that you would know that you can be called a, chil- a child of God if you put your hope in him and put down your silly facades of trying to argue about how, how Jesus isn't Jesus and who he says he is, about trying to be half-hearted about following God and, uh, yeah, I'm not going to go that extreme, or even at your very core, just plain rejecting him, but your heart would be melted by the heat of the gospel. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for who you are. We're grateful, God, for all that you've done and all that you continue to do. We recognize in this room we are not a bunch of perfect people. And yet, at the same time, as you tell us in Hebrews 10, 14, you have made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. So as we are becoming like you, as we are walking and learning to walk in purity, we are sanctified. We are saints because our Father has made us pure. And we love it. We're so grateful for that. Our prayer this morning is that we would be more of a family, that we would recognize what draws us together is not hipster, skater, jock, whatever it is, Greek or Gentile, it doesn't matter. It, at the very core of what we're doing and, and who we are, we follow you, and that is the semblance that we all try to do the will of God. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for providing a way to the Father in the midst of being called crazy, in the midst of being called demonic, in the midst of all the heinous spitting, whipping, crucifying, you've provided a way for us, and we're so eternally grateful for it. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.